In a previous episode, we explored the new DOL fiduciary rules, but what are the challenges and pitfalls of those rules at the practice level? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. How can you be the first to know about each week's podcast and get on the list for special listener-only content? It's simple. Go to shiftshapersonline.com and click the subscribe button. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're speaking with Jamie Hopkins. Jamie is Associate Professor of Taxation at the American College. We've spoken a little bit about the new DOL fiduciary rule, and as people have had a chance to digest it, some folks are trying to figure out what more of the practical implications are, especially if you're a more traditional benefits advisory firm. And Jamie's been kind enough to spend some time with us this morning talking about just those eventualities. So with that, welcome, Jamie. Thank you for having me in today. And just to recap for folks who maybe haven't heard our previous episode on this subject, what's the ruling? Why does it matter? What changes? Yeah, so the Department of Labor had a really big ruling, which most people are probably somewhat aware of that occurred, which is really an expansion of an existing rule set that really requires advisors in certain situations to act in the best interest and reduce conflicts of interest for their clients. Now, what got expanded? Well, what got expanded is this rule typically in the past applied to the qualified plan market. So your 401k, your ERISA covered retirement plans. Now, there was a little bit of that in the IRA market before, but this really got expanded out. Now, if you are somebody dealing with IRAs, dealing with rollovers, dealing with distributions of retirement assets, that's where this rule really hits home. It now is going to require a much broader range of financial service professionals to act under this ERISA best interest and fiduciary model, which can be a challenge to business models as they exist today. So if I'm a more traditional benefits advisory shop, but I'm life licensed and maybe I sell the occasional annuity, do I have a problem with this? Yeah, and that's uh, that's probably the group, one of the groups that has the biggest problems with this. If you were, you know, kind of dabbling in this area before of financial planning into the retirement assets. This is really, that was part of the group that was this rule was focused on, that they were saying, well, if you're kind of putting one foot in, you've either got to jump into the pool now or get out. So if you were just going around and selling one annuity here, there, and you had all the appropriate licensing, and you were meeting all the suitability standards, and it probably was helping those clients. Um, the you know, Department of Labor isn't saying that was the case. But what they're saying is there were potential conflicts there, that you were doing that 
in part because you probably got paid more. You've got a commission off that annuity. And they want to reduce those conflicts of interest. They want to change the, the model that's out there from people getting paid really for product sales over to being paid for advice in the retirement markets. And, and that's a big shift for some people. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that you might not be able to kind of continue doing those one-off fixed annuity or variable annuity sales because they're going to require a higher standard of care here moving forward that you're going to have to act as a fiduciary somebody with knowledge of the whole situation and that's going to require much more comprehensive planning than just a here and there annuity sale i guess there are a couple of avenues open to you either one you as a benefits advisor a more traditional benefits advisor do jump in the pool altogether if you do that what do you need to do to bring yourself up to speed? How does your practice change if the focus has been more what we would call traditional employee benefits? Yeah, so if you want to get into this market, you're going to have to look at the whole business model because your company will have to comply. And that's one of the things that is very interesting here. Now, if you're a solo person or a small shop, you kind of are the company, so you can make those decisions. But you have to get the whole company really on board because some of the requirements under this new DOL rule actually requires a financial institution. It's required under the rules, so the whole company is actually the one that has to implement some of the processes. Now, if we're trying to sell things like annuities moving forward, well, really, the Department of Labor said annuity sales to IRAs are most likely going to be conflicted, and there's going to be some prohibited transaction around them. If you're going to get paid a commission for the sale of a product, that is conflicted advice, and it's prohibited on its face. And so in order to be able to do any of that, you're going to have to find some exception to the rule. And that's going to take you down. There's a prohibited transaction exemption, 8424, which might take us to some of the annuity sales. We might have to go under what's called this best interest contract exemption, which will take us through a different avenue. And that's the more onerous one. That's the one that's going to require a lot of disclosures, a lot of paperwork, signing contracts with each of our potential clients there and making sure that they understand that we are acting as a fiduciary, that the company is acting as a fiduciary, that the company is liable for this product or sale. And we've got to put our compensation models really out there to the world, even up on the internet moving forward too. And that's a lot of work. It's a lot of compliance and at some point, you have to make that business decision. Does it make sense for us to do all of this work if we're only doing a handful of these sales or planning a year? If we're still typically, if our model is elsewhere, do we want to jump all the way in there? Or is it time to back away from this and say, well, we can't do these kind of one-off planning scenarios in the future? We'll stick with annuities because I think it's a good low-hanging fruit kind of example to use that's comfortable for everyone. Do I understand you to say that the only way that you're going to be able to, to sell these and stay within the confines of the ruling is to sell on a fee basis rather than a commission basis? No. So you actually can continue to receive commissions off of annuities. That's okay. But if you do receive a commission off of your annuity sale, whether it's fixed, variable, or fixed indexed, that sale with commissions is going to actually be considered on its face really not allowed. And so then you say, oh, 
that's kind of where you get it. Well, can I do it then? Well, you can still do it, but you have to then do more work. You've then got to fall under one of the Department of Labor's exemptions. So you now have a prohibited transaction. You've got conflicted advice because you've got variable compensation tied to your advice that you're saying, hey, buy this annuity. I make more money through a commission. That's conflicted. Can't do it. But now we can do it if we go under an exemption. And that's where all the additional compliance and kind of cost then shows up for the advisor and company is trying to fit it into one of those exemptions. And depending on what type of annuity you're selling, the exemption you fit in can be more onerous than another. But this applies equally to fixed and variable annuities. This isn't just a securities issue. Correct. Yeah, it applies to fixed annuities. It applies to variable. It applies to fixed indexed annuities. So all of those. And again, the one important thing is that you're selling these inside of an IRA or some qualified plan. There's still a very big market for annuity sales outside of the qualified plan world or qualified annuity world, right? It's still about a third to 40% of the market is outside of the IRA world. So if you were selling in that world, Nothing really changed. That's okay. You can continue to do that. But once you start tapping into that IRA money, that rollover money, that distribution money from a 401k, now that's where this new fiduciary rule is going to kick in and put new requirements over top of your business. We spent a bunch of time talking about what might best be called the glass half empty problem, but maybe we look at this as a glass half full type problem. There's an opportunity, I would think, for traditional benefit advisors to build retirement income practices either within their practice or by creating strategic partnerships with outside firms. So let's talk about what you would need to do if you wanted to create that kind of a practice and comply within your existing business. Yeah, so if you wanted to create this practice, and I I do personally think this is a great opportunity for people to get into this market. And I say, you know, there's been concerns out there, oh, we're going to lose a lot of advisors and people aren't going to do retirement income planning. I don't think that's the case because where's all the money? Where are all the clients? Well, the clients are baby boomers with all the money moving into retirement. They need retirement income help. And so there's a market for this. So people are going to figure out a way to make their business models fit. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that you have to be really a comprehensive advisor moving forward if you want to deal with IRA and qualified assets and do rollovers and distributions you need to be a comprehensive advisor and it also means you're probably going to have to change some of your compensation models or at least if you're setting up a new business that you're going to set them up with the correct compensation model in place that's trying to get as close to a level fee as you can it's going to be a lot easier moving forward under some type of level fee structure, assets under management or a flat planning fee, it's just a lot easier there. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have some commissions. The Department of Labor didn't outlaw that, but it makes it a lot harder to do any type of variable comp where you know, you're trying to provide advice here. That also means you're going to have to set up structures for looking for products, looking for software, which you might not have today, that you're going to need some type of asset allocation, distribution, tax software to help. You're also probably going to want to start looking at things like Social Security if you go down this route, because a prudent retirement income advisor advising about distributions from an IRA is going to start thinking about taxes, is going to start thinking about RMDs, is going to start thinking about Social Security. So while you might have had a good grasp of one or two areas of retirement income playing before, and you said, we could probably do this, now if you decide to get into this arena, you're going to have 
to have a much broader concept of what it is to do retirement income planning because these are all the factors that a prudent rollover or retirement income advisor would be considering. And that's really the standard here to act in this field. It's a fiduciary standard, best interest. And what does best interest means? It means what would a prudent advisor with knowledge in that area be doing? And that kind of looks across the industry at best practices. So you have to really mold your business then around what people are doing in the industry at the kind of highest levels. That's where you want to shoot for. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years experience working with educational institutions. And over that time, They've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing health care costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. Would you recommend if somebody wants to set up a practice area within their existing business that they set it up as a separate business entity or are there common ownership provisions that make that moot? A lot of the times you actually do have to set up a separate business. Sometimes there have to be walls here, and, and that's sometimes state regulation, sometimes SEC regulation, banking regulations that you need to keep something separate. And so if you go to set up a business, you are going to want to talk to an attorney about that and say, are there issues with putting all of this into one shop, or do we need two separate entities? And, and the common ownership thing can show up, but a lot of times that actually for, for this stuff, it's more of a fictional wall. That, that, that there are two separate entities that maybe if there's a door, it might even be in the same building, but if there's a door in between the two offices, it actually gets locked and both sides don't have the key to it. Um, it even simple things like that can come into place here, uh, just trying to get it set up. But I always advise when you're dealing with those things, because there are state regulations here for insurance also, which will come into place, that you probably should talk to an attorney in your state to get the best advice on how to set up the business. Can we do it inside of our business? Or do we have to set up a separate legal entity here? Which if you're trying to get into maybe the RIA world, you probably will be going separate registered investment advisor that you probably will be setting up a separate company to go through that process. Jamie, that sounds like a, a lot of work and a lot of complexity. Are there opportunities to maybe go a different route and create strategic partnerships with firms that are doing this and thereby comply with the law but still be able to service your clients? Absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of people are going to be looking for right now. How can we align ourselves with somebody else where, you know, one, you, you don't want to align yourself with somebody who might be stealing business from you. So you want to align yourself with somebody who's adding value to the client in a different way than you're adding value to the client. And you might say, well, we want to keep them kind of, you know, well taken care of, satisfied and get them the help they need. But we really can't be the place that does all this. So we can create strategic alliances, agreements. There 
there can still be some compensation models that can be agreed upon for sending business over. Some of that's still going to be okay. Now, finding the right partner, that'll be very specific to your business, specific to your area, specific to the clients that you have. But that is a real opportunity out there to go out and find somebody who's already existing in the world that's doing this retirement income planning, that's managing these assets, and you know, kind of find a way to work that suits both of you and comes out to the best interest of your client. That's really the kind of end goal, right? You, you want to service them better, and that's going to be good for you too. So if I'm a benefit advisor and I choose that route, I need to do a certain amount of due diligence. Could you give us the top however many things you think that somebody doing due diligence on a firm with whom they want to create a strategic partnership, what things should they look for? What needs to get looked at before you jump into that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. So I I would look at things, you know, like one, how long have they been in business? If you're trying to set up a strategic partnership and you're established benefits firm, you probably don't want to go with the newest kid on the block. And that's just a practical thing, right? The other firm is probably going to have more experience and better understand the market. So if you're trying to create this new relationship, look for somebody who maybe is a little bit more established. It's not jumping into this new now too, because they might still be trying to figure things out. The other thing you're going to want to look for is maybe the size. Maybe if you're looking at an RIA, how many assets under management do they have? How big are they? Are they going to be able to handle our type of client? And it could cut either way. Maybe the firm has really too many assets. You might say they're not really going to get the care that we want our clients to get. Maybe we need to find a slightly smaller firm that's going to pay more attention to our clients. Or you have clients that have a lot of money and you say, you know what, that's where we want to go. We want to go to the big place that has a good name in this area. I also think you want to look you know, a little bit, and you can find some of this information. Have there been any complaints about this firm, You know, regulatory or otherwise? Have they been in trouble? Always do that. Look around, see there, and talk and try to get some recommendations. If you're talking to a firm, say, hey, look, we want to talk to four or five of your clients and see what their experience have been like here, where they came from. And if you've worked with benefit advisors before, or you work with any other ones, we want to know about that too. Are there any potential conflicts for this arrangement? As a benefit advisor, going out to another firm and trying to determine the right firm to work with, how do I know that they're compliant with this DOL ruling? What things do I need to look for? Are there documents they need to provide me or or certifications? Or what are the things that I can do to assure both for my own sake in terms of not picking up any liability or contingent liability, and also for my clients to make sure they're serviced properly, that this firm is compliant. Absolutely. So I think one big thing to do is actually ask how they're set up. If they're a broker-dealer, are they an insurance company? Are they an independent advisor group? Are they an RIA? That's going to tell you a little bit about them. And then you also want to ask about how they're compensated. That's one of the single biggest things about this Department of Labor rule is really about how people are compensated. So if you talk to the firm, they say, yeah, we're a mix of commissions and fees. That's a little bit more of a concern for you moving forward because we just know that that firm's going to have to do more compliance work. There's more red flags. Then if you go to a firm that says, we're a flat fee firm. And if they're a flat fee firm, you say, okay, well, a lot of the stuff under the DOL rule, 
we don't have to worry about as much with you. Now, there are still some concerns. And then you can ask them even further, you know, how is your company dealing with the Department of Labor? And are you under the best interest contract exemption? Is your your whole firm going to operate under that? And they might say yes or no. If they say yes, they are going to operate on that. Then you can ask them for those same things. Well, can we see what the best interest contract that you guys are using is? Can we see the website where you're putting up your compensation is? These are things that they have to give out to the public and to their clients. So you can ask them about that. But I think asking about compensation is going to be a big one. How the firm is set up is a big one. And then if they are operating under the Department of Labor rule, which we hope that if we're creating this strategic alliance, they are going to be operating under it, ask them for some of the documents that they're going to be required to build out. Because if you walk in there and you say, oh, yeah, the, we're operating under the best interest contract exemption, and you say, can we see the contract in your fee disclosures? And they say, no, that's a concern, right? That's probably not the person you want to be working with then. Sure. Jamie, we've got about a minute or two left, and we always like to ask our guests how they envision the future. And relative to this DOL ruling, we we know that as regs roll out over time, things change, things refine, um, some things maybe get more complicated. What's your vision for the near and midterm with how this rule starts settling in? The near term is right now people are still trying to get somewhat of a grasp on what does the rule mean and how are we going to mold our business to meet it. We probably have another month or two of that. Somewhere in the summer, we're going to see that time phase kind of end. And what we're going to see is people move into the implementation. How do we get this into place and operational? And then sometime next year, we're going to see this pop back up as a big concern. We're going to have to see companies not quite yet prepared for it. We should also expect some continued Department of Labor, you know, regulations and guidance over the next couple years. And I also think there's a big concern that we might see a lot more education that's needed in the industry, which I don't think firms have quite put into budgets and figured out yet. But if you're trying to meet under this new best interest standard, we might not have the education skill set and training to actually operate there yet. So I think that's kind of a next step too. And I know that's something that the American College is is focusing on in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do an RICP, Retirement Income Certified Professional Designation, which with the rollout, that almost feels like a the mandatory education you might need. Now, not particularly from the college, you wouldn't have to get it there, but having that comprehensive knowledge about retirement income planning seems like almost a must if you want to be in this area, whether it's company or college provided, but it really does seem like something you'd have to look at. Jamie Hopkins, Associate Professor of Taxation at the American College. Jamie, thanks so much for helping to explain what's getting to be a very complex and complicated environment for benefit advisors who are looking to expand their practice. We appreciate your time. Yep. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great topic to be discussing. The Shift Shapers Podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved. 